Hello, and welcome to the next episode of How Good It Is, the show that takes a closer look at songs from the rock and roll era, and we check out some of the stories behind those songs and the artists who made them famous. My name is Claude Call, and I've got an extra hour to work on this show, right? Right? <laughs> okay. Remember to check out the website, howgooditis.com, and the Twitter, and the Instagram, and of course the Facebook page, which you can find over there at facebook.com slash pod. Ooh, I've got some cool trivia for ye right here, which I think may come as a neat surprise. I don't usually talk about the Beatles on this show because they're just so well documented that I can't often bring you anything new, but this one I learned pretty recently and I thought you might appreciate it. What Beatles song lyric was directly inspired by something Shakespeare did regularly? As a hint, I will tell you that it's on the Abbey Road album, and I'll have the answer to that at the end of this show. By the end of 1974, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band had released two albums which received a ton of critical acclaim, but didn't do a whole lot from a sales standpoint. But that was about to change. In May of 1974, the band went back into the studio and Springsteen began to be a little more conscious of making his lyrics maybe a little bit more accessible to the listeners. Part of that was a shift away from references to specific locations in New Jersey. I mean, it's cool if you live in that area and you recognize what he's talking about, but stuff like that can alienate listeners if it infuses the entire album. And then there was also a general maturation away from teenage love songs and overly clever lyrics. Again, it's fun to sing stuff like go-kart Mozart was checking out the weather chart to see if it was safe outside, but ultimately it's inaccessible and it often leads to unfavorable comparisons to Bob Dylan, I think. So in general, Springsteen took more care with the writing, but he also took a lot more time on the individual tracks on the album so that the entire thing put took 14 months to put together. And the title track, Born to Run, took the better part of six months to lay down the way Springsteen wanted it. According to writer Bob Kilpatrick, the sequencing of the album was also pretty specific, with the opening songs on each side being these big odes to escape, while the closing tracks were songs of loss or betrayal. Thunder Road, which opened side one, was the original title of the album, but ultimately they went with the side two opener as the album title. And incidentally, if your copy of the album has Springsteen's name and the title written in what looks like a fountain pen rather than a more typical printed font, you might have an album that's worth over $1,000. Bruce Springsteen himself once wrote that he was working out some song ideas when the phrase Born to Run came to him. At first, he thought it was maybe the name of a movie or something similar. Maybe he'd seen it on a car spinning around the circuit. He said he liked the phrase because it suggested a cinematic drama that might work well with the music he had running in his head. One of the problems that they had with getting the song recorded had to do with Springsteen overthinking every step of the process. The story goes that only one member of the band could read and write notated music, so he came up with a horn arrangement, but while the horn players were all pros, the sheet music still didn't quite provide the feel that he was looking for. So, Stephen Van Zant, a longtime friend of Springsteen who was only visiting the recording session because he wasn't a member of the band yet, figured something out, and he sang it to the horn section so that it sounded the way it was supposed to. In addition, Van Zant was partially responsible for the song's guitar line. In an interview with Uncut Magazine, Van Zant said that he was listening to an early version of the song, and he complimented Springsteen on what he thought was a minor riff. 
but Springsteen didn't know what he was talking about. So Van Zant explained that Springsteen appeared to be doing this Dwayne Eddy kind of thing with a lot of echo on it, and he was bending up to the last note. But the echo didn't allow you to hear the bending. It was very subtle. So they wound up redoing the guitar part and then the entire mix. But basically, the entire process went like that, with the band going down a lot of blind alleys and starting over until everything sounded the way Springsteen had it in his head. Ultimately, rehearsals started for Born to Run in the second week of January 1974, and the recording was completed in August. But all that meant was that the recording was done. At that point, they had 72 tracks of music, which had to be mixed down to the 16 that were available in the studio. There were a dozen guitar tracks. There was sax, there was bass, there was drums, there were several keyboards, a bunch of vocals, strings, and of course that glockenspiel. Springsteen and co-producer Mike Appel put together a few different arrangements with the assistance of Louis Lahav as chief engineer on the song. So be, somewhere between August and September of 1974, the song was basically done, and in November, Appel took a slightly different mix to WMMR in Philadelphia, where DJ Ed uh, Shiaki, I think that's how it's pronounced, uh, played it as part of an interview with Springsteen. Before long, this version was in the hands of WNEW in New York, WMMS in Cleveland, WBCN in Boston, and WVBR in Ithaca, New York. And I want you to have a listening to the opening and Specifically, I want you to pay attention to a couple of things. First, the drums are a little bit different, and they're very stereo. The other thing I'll call your attention to as the song gets to it. Now, listen closely to the vocals. Huh? How about that with the backup singers? You can hear that the whole thing is a little bit more sparse, maybe not as deeply layered as the version we all know and love. Plus, the background singers come in again later on. And it seems to me that the, the strings are just a little bit more prominent here, uh, and the glockenspiel is pushed back a little bit. Let's let's continue toward the end.
There's also a, a tiny flourish of keyboard at the very, very end. It's actually just beyond the fade. I'm not going to play it here. But if you're curious, you can find the song on YouTube. So leaking the song, even if it was a different mix to those stations, was a pretty cagey move, especially since Springsteen had local popularity, and it led those stations to start playing more of his back catalog, so that by the time the album and the single was simultaneously released at the end of August, there was a whole world of anticipation for it, and by then, that anticipation had spread beyond the northeast corner of the United States. That early mix had been played enough that when Springsteen played the song at a Pennsylvania concert in February, long before the finished single came out, the crowd was able to sing along with it. And while Springsteen was moving away from specific Jersey locales in his song, he still managed to sneak in a couple. Highway 9 refers to U.S. Highway 9. That's a prominent road that runs from Champlain, New York to Laurel, Delaware. And it's a major road down the eastern Jersey shoreline. But you just say Highway 9 and it's generic enough for the general public while still being something that the locals can enjoy. And of course, Highway 9 runs through Springsteen's hometown of Freehold, New Jersey. So make no mistake, the song is about escaping from Freehold. At least it was in 1974. Now over the years, Springsteen has changed his views of the song and of the couple in the song. He introduces the song in some concerts by saying that when he wrote the song, well, he was writing about a guy and a girl who just wanted to run and keep on running. But eventually, he realized that all of these people he had put in cars had to go somewhere. Basically, individual freedom without a connection to a community of some kind is kind of meaningless. So in some concert performances, the lyrics are changed so that the boy and his girl Wendy are now married. Hey, who is this girl Wendy anyway? Well, there's one theory that Springsteen had a poster over his bed of Peter Pan leading Wendy out the window. But Springsteen was 24 when he wrote the song, so I'm not really biting on that one. Another one suggests that she was a childhood friend of his named Wendy Cook, who was once married to Peter McDermott, another childhood friend who's mentioned in his autobiography. I guess it's possible, but the thing is, if you go back to the original source, the lyrics that Springsteen originally wrote down when he was first inspired, Wendy is completely absent. The Everlasting Kiss line was originally written as, I was heading for the place where wild angels die in an everlasting or never-ending kiss. That's the way he wrote it, everlasting or never-ending kiss. That doesn't quite scan, so it appears to me that Springsteen maybe hadn't quite figured out which kiss he was going to use, but clearly there's no Wendy there. Plus, the song isn't even in the second person here, and the line about living together with all the sadness was added later on. And how do we know all this? I'm so glad you asked. Because in 2014, a copy of the handwritten lyrics was sold at auction for $197,000 to a retired software marketer named Floyd Bradley. Oddly enough, Bradley does have some connection to Bruce Springsteen. His mother and Springsteen's mother were next-door neighbors for a bit, and when his mother sold her house, Springsteen bought it for his own mother-in-law. In addition, Bradley's daughter and Springsteen's daughter both attended Duke University, just a coincidence, and both of them graduated as part of the class of 2014. And Bradley did meet Springsteen once when he was visiting his mother, and she asked him to bring something over to their next-door neighbor. And while he was over there, Adele Springsteen invited him to meet her son, who was visiting at the time. Now, oddly enough, the song was covered before Springsteen was able to release it, but the cover wasn't released until after Springsteen's version came out. That cover was by Alan Clark of The Hollies. My day was 
That buzz you hear is in the Clark recording, and unfortunately I couldn't clean it up. It's not awful, I guess, but it's interesting to note that the label on the 45 has Springsteen's name misspelled as Springstein. Another notable of the cover was done by the 80s band Frankie Goes to Hollywood on their 1984 debut album, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome. In November of that year, Frankie Goes to Hollywood played the song on Saturday Night Live along with their other single, Two Tribes. It was the same day that the album hit number one in the UK, though unfortunately Frankie's US airplay was mostly limited to alternative and college radio and in the dance clubs. So here's a fun version. In 1991, a band called Big Daddy, which specializes in recording modern songs using older arrangements, put this version together. I would be totally remiss if I didn't bring this version to your attention. from Sesame Street featuring Bruce Spring Stringbean and the S Street Band and while to my ear it sounds a little bit more like Jungle Land than Born to Run you still haven't lived until you've seen Muppets bopping around to a Springsteen pastiche there are a couple of other covers but none of these have seen any chart action and speaking of which Springsteen's version peaked at number 23 on the Billboard Hot 100 but it got a ton of airplay on the album-oriented stations and the progressive stations. It had very little success outside the United States, although it did finally make the charts in the UK in 1987, when a live version recorded in, go figure, New Jersey, made it to number 16 there. Finally, a while back, way back in episode number eight, I talked about the opening snare shot of uh, Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, and it bears repeating here. This is a clip from episode eight of this show. But you know, it's not just the first notes that make the song special, although they do. It's also the knowledge that everything is going to be different now. And only a few songs can really convey that message. Chances are that was the case with Johnny B. Good. I mean, I wasn't around at the time, but, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure, you know, you, those notes rang out and all of a sudden you're like, whoa! And I can only imagine, like, the first time maybe somebody heard uh, Jefferson Airplane, Somebody to Love, when, when Grace Slick just bangs out those first few notes. 
And almost certainly, it was the case with this song, which opens like this. Did you catch that? Let me play it again, just in case. Now, lots of songs open with a simple drum shot, and off the top of my head, I can think of a couple. Uh, Hold the Line by Toto, or Every Breath You Take by the Police. Uh, for slightly longer drum breaks opening a song, well, you've got uh, It's the End of the World, uh, as we know it, by R.E.M., Born to Run by Bruce Springsteen, or Rock and Roll by Led Zeppelin. And in nearly all of those cases, if I played that opener and just that opener, then you'd probably know exactly what song was coming up. And to me, this one is no exception. And if you read the website, you know that shortly after that episode dropped, I learned about a quote that Springsteen said regarding the first time he heard that snare from like a Rolling Stone. He said it was as though a door in his head had been kicked open. I I think I felt much the same way about the opening of Born to Run when I was about the same age as Springsteen was when he heard Dylan. In fact, I mentioned specifically that the opening drum riff on Born to Run was a signal that things were going to be different. Here it is in the finished version. Everything's different now. Incidentally, that's not Max Weinberg on the drums. Ernest Boom Carter was the drummer for the E Street Band at the time the song was recorded. He and piano player uh, David Sanchez worked on the song, and then they left the band. So uh, Weinberg took over in drums, and Roy Batan took over on keyboards. So they're on the album, but they're not on this song. And now it's time to answer today's trivia question. Back on page two, I asked you to name the song lyric from the Beatles, which is based on something Shakespeare did on a regular basis. And the hint I gave is that it's on the Abbey Road album. Well, William Shakespeare had a habit of ending scenes with a rhyming couplet. For instance, at the end of Romeo and Juliet, you hear, For never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. Similarly, at the end of Midsummer Night's Dream, Puck addresses the audience by saying, Give me your hands if we be friends, and Robin shall restore amends. So Paul McCartney took a page from Shakespeare, and he ended the album with a couplet. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you And that's a full lid on yet another edition of How Good It Is. If you're enjoying the show, please take the time to share it with someone and maybe even leave a rating somewhere. If you want to get in touch with the show, well, you can email me at howgoodpodcasts at gmail.com or you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at howgooditis. You can also visit, like, and follow the show's Facebook page at facebook.com slash howgooditispod. And finally... You've got the show's website, howgooditis.com. I think I'm, I'm going to post that Muppet video just for the laughs. Thanks, as usual, to Podcast Republic for featuring the show. And next time around, we're going to find out how good it is when they call you Deacon Blues. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you next time. <laughs>